0: This morning we begin a new series that we'll uh, we'll be in for the next six weeks. And this uh, series that we're beginning this morning is called City on a Hill. City on a Hill. It is a series about the church. And I would say to you this morning that I'm quite certain that many of you have come uh, in here with uh, some pretty uh, strong ideas about the church and uh, some of those ideas are simply incomplete. There is more to the church of Jesus Christ than you have ever thought about. Others of you have come in here this morning perhaps with wrong ideas about the church. You have had your idea of what the church is, uh, but perhaps your idea is based on, uh, on wrong factual information. And so, um, over the next six weeks, we are going to be on a journey during which we're going to discover some new and exciting uh, truths uh, uh, to you, perhaps, about the church. Uh, the reason the series is called A City on a Hill is that the Greek word for church uh, that is used throughout the New Testament. Uh, that Greek word is also used to denote the assembly of a group of citizens of a particular city. And so when that city's citizens assemble together, it is called an ecclesia in the Greek, or a church is what the word came to be in Scripture. In Matthew 5, verse 14. Uh, Jesus looks at a ragtag group of people. They are politically oppressed. They have no voice uh, in their own lives, and their own freedom. Many of them are jobless. Many of them are homeless. They are not the people that you and I would think uh, that are going to be part of any kind of significant historical movement. And Jesus looks at those people in Matthew 5 and says this, You are the light of the world. (laughs) You are the light of the world. You and I, it would never occur to us to look at such a group of people and see in them what Jesus saw in them and what he saw as possible for them. He says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He saw in this ragtag group of people the light of the world and a city set on a hill. It's quite remarkable that he saw that. Later in Matthew 18, Jesus is preaching, or Jesus is teaching and talking with his disciples, and he asks them who others say that he is and who they say that he is, and Peter confesses him to be Christ, the Messiah. And so Jesus changes his P- P- has changed Peter's name from Cephas to Peter. And then he uses a play on words there in Matthew 18. And because the word Peter means means uh, it's a, a little rock. And, and then he says, I, I say that you are uh, Peter. And upon this rock, a major rock of your confession of me as Christ, I will build my church. And he described the church as this impenetrable, uh, impenetrable work that is so impenetrable that even the gates of hell could not come against it. It would be this remarkable church that even the gates of hell. And I would say to you again that if we were choosing people to be on the front lines of the church, we wouldn't have chosen those 12 guys Jesus is talking to. Peter's a fisherman, he's a loudmouth, he says whatever comes to his mind. Uh, You've got Matthew, who's the turncoat tax collector. He's uh, made money off of his fellow uh, Jews for many, many years. You've got James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder. They're fishermen too, which means they were low on the totem pole. Um, You've got Thomas, who we later learned doubted quite a bit, and then... Then there's Judas, who is probably the one with the best resume. We most likely would have looked at Judas, his experience, his business acumen, and said, yeah, he he he, has, he shows great success. And Jesus looked at those people, and, and he said to those guys, I'm going to build my church. And sure enough, Peter, who denied him vehemently, came first out of the chute, preaching the gospel 3,000 people came to Christ that day that was over 2,000 years ago, and the thing called the church is going strong and will always. Jesus made that promise in Matthew 15 that the church would be this impenetrable entity uh, that even the gates of hell uh, would not be able to prevail against. And so that brings us to our text this morning. And when we uh, land where we land this morning in 1 Corinthians, we see an image that Paul uses to describe the church. He, calls, he compares the church to the human body. Now, in the New Testament, there are many images there's the flock, the church is the flock of God. The church is called a family uh, in the New Testament. Uh, the, the church is a fellowship, uh, the church is the bride of Christ. There are multiple images multiple metaphors that New Testament writers use to talk about the church and what the church is, what we discover in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the metaphor, the image of body, a human body. The church is the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ... Uh, the church what paul wants to drive home is unity Uh, if the church is a compared to human body then the church must be one and uh, verse 12 bears that out for just as the body is one listen as i read this at how many times you hear the word one for just as the body is one it has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with christ For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Paul is driving home the point that the church is the church. Uh, It's one church. There aren't many, many different churches. We all belong to one church. Now, to be sure, most of the references in the New Testament are to churches like this one at Corinth or churches at Ephesus. It's a local gathered body of believers. But before we can be local gathered body of believers, the church at Grace Community or the church in Marion, before we can be that, we're part of the church, the one church, uh, the confessions of the faith, faith, the historic confessions of the faith, we'll we'll call it the Catholic church, uh, not referring to the Roman Catholic church, but to the church collected all over the world. Danny be- dan and betty thornton were with us this morning they are back from france he was over there they were over there for six months and she said on the way out it was so neat to be here this morning realizing that a week or so ago we were in france worshiping with the church there so what is it what is this church and what is uh, uh paul talking about here what are the implications of the oneness of the church What are the implications of it? Well, first of all, uh, the first implication, you'll see these on the screen, you are not inferior to any other member of the body. You are not inferior to any other member of the body. Check it out. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then Paul envisions a conversation. For if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Paul pictures the body parts having a conversation among themselves. and So the foot uh, says, well, I'm not a hand. And since I'm not a hand, I'm just checking out. I'm really not a part of this body. Why might the foot say that? Let's let our imaginations carry us for a moment. Why might the foot say, I don't belong to this body because I'm not a hand? Here's why. This morning, in both services, I've met several of you who've never been to grace before. And guess what? I greeted none of you with my feet. And you're glad, aren't you? I extended... She's glad. I extended my hand as you extended yours to me, and we greeted. Feet never get to do that. And so my feet could be, could have been saying, while I was doing that, hey, why don't I get that opportunity? Jeff and Sarah have a baby boy this morning. Do you know what? They have yet to hold that baby boy with their feet. Why? Well, it's gross, right? You don't hold babies with your feet. If you think of the meticulous things you have done in your life or the creative things that you've done, you've done those with your hands. And so it will be real easy for the foot to begin to think, wow, I never get to do those things. They're always covering me up here. You know, when, when they have enough money, either for a pedicure or a manicure, it's always the manicure. I get left behind all the time, Right? The feet could be thinking that way. And when the feet begin to think that way, all of a sudden an inferiority complex begins to develop because I am not a hand. I don't belong to the body. Or the ear could have the same conversation, right? That's what Paul says. The ear could say, well, I'm not an eye. And I don't belong. Last night, we were, yesterday afternoon, we were at at, uh, Ethan Hester's wedding. And so some music was playing and it was my brown-eyed girl. And Wendy was singing it, and she kind of poked me because she has brown eyes, and she's my brown-eyed girl, right? I've yet to hear a song about my attached lobe girl. (laughs) Right? That would be gross. I know no love songs written about ears. None. None. Ears are weird. I mean, if you just look around, look around, you can do it right now. Look at your neighbor's ears. They're just weird. Ears are weird. They've got weird tunnels and all kinds of things in them. And so the ear could look at the eye and say, wow. Wow, nobody put makeup on me this morning. I don't belong in this family. You know, why aren't you doing things to me? I just don't belong in this body. I don't need to be part of this body. And Paul says the oneness of the body means that the inferiority complex is done and over. You cannot, you as a member of the body, you're not inferior to any other member of the body. Now let me address a cultural problem that we have here. In the United States, perhaps this is pronounced everywhere else, but in the United States, we are all about some self-esteem, aren't we? This is a self-esteem culture. And one of the lies of self-esteem is that you're just as good as anybody else. And it is true that I am inferior to many people in many different ways. How so? Well, let's go into a weight room. And there are many of you who are far superior to me in a weight room than I am. All right, you're just superior to me. You have bigger muscles. You can lift bigger weights. That's just the reality of it. All right, that's just the reality of it. Uh, you, you just could, many of you can sing better than I can. Many of you can do, you could just fill the list in, right? We are never expected to be as good at everything else as everybody else is. That is an American lie of self-esteem, I have to be as pretty as the next person. I have to be as skinny as the next person. I have to have uh, whatever and fill in the blank. And that isn't reality. That's not what Paul is addressing here. Paul is addressing the mindset that because I don't have the role of fill in the blank, then I am less important. And there is no place for that in the body. No place for it at all. As a matter of fact, If we were to follow that to its logical conclusion, or you might say illogical conclusion, Paul is saying it's grotesque. How does he say that? Look at this. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? I mean, could you imagine if we looked around and we're just a bunch of eyeballs sitting here? That's what Paul is saying. What if we were just a bunch of eyeballs? How would you have driven here this morning? All right, we're just a bunch of eyeballs sitting around. That'd be gross, wouldn't it? If the whole body were an eye? Or if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? How many of you are parents of little kids? The sense of smell is important. Because if you couldn't smell, things could get nasty quick. Right? That sense of smell is is just so important. So what if you're just one big giant ear? We're just a bunch of ears. You know, Just you look around and we're just a room full of ears. All we can do is hear. We can't see. We can't smell. That's what Paul is saying. Someone has said, "You've never seen on a tombstone here. Li- here lies Bob, who wanted to be a whole lot like Ralph." That's not how we live, is it? Where is it? Is that how you live? Do you live to be like somebody else? Do you live to perform as someone else performs, or are you fighting those feelings of inferiority? Stay-at-home moms struggle with this a lot, I think. They look at working moms around them and think of these kind of rewards that working moms have, and they think, wow, I'm staying here, and you know, my kids are snotty-nosed right now, or this is what's going on with them, or I'm dealing with this, I'm dealing with that. It, it's so easy to compare, isn't it? That leads us to the second implication of the oneness of the body. God put you where you are. Look at verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body. Each one of them as he chose. God put you where you are. God did. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So God does the arranging as he chooses to do. So when you say, wow, uh, you know, I I don't belong in this body. I'm just an ear. That's all I am. I'm just an ear. Look at those eyes. Everybody's always talking about his eyes. and, And I just don't belong. Just take me out of this body. What you're doing is you're looking at the design and saying there's a design flaw. And if there's a design flaw, guess what? There's a problem with the designer. The inferiority complex in the body of Christ is an affront to a God who puts it all together. To a God who says, this is how I've designed the body, and this is your job. This is what I've called you to do. We see this played out initially. We see it played out initially in Exodus 31. In Exodus 31, the people of Israel, they're wandering around, and as they're wandering uh, around through the wilderness, God says, you need a tabernacle, and in that tabernacle, you need a holy place, and in the holy place, you need a, an ark, and it's going to take a lot of work, I mean, to do the carvings and the things that are needed for the ark and the sewing for the, for the tent and uh, all of that, it's going to be quite a hefty job. So what does he do? Uh, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 31, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft, And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I commanded you. There's a colon and then the list of everything they're going to make. And what does God say? I've called these guys. I've appointed them. I've filled them by my spirit with the ability to do every single thing that needs to be done in order for this this, uh, to become a reality. That's what he says. This is just a foreshadowing of how God is going to so organize and orchestrate the church to put it all together to where that every single member in the body has its function and there is no inferiority because of position. Because God is the one who's doing the filling and the working and the designing. He's the, he's the one who's doing the calling. I never, ever wanted to be a pastor, ever. There wasn't a moment that I recall in my life before God called me that I thought, oh, I can't wait to do that one day. As a matter of fact, I went into college saying I will never do it. I went into grad school saying I will never do it. I came out of grad school saying yes to the ministry. It is God who calls It is God who positions and God who places. And when you're in his church doing his work where he's called you to do, you're in this sweet spot. You know it. You enjoy it. You enjoy what you're doing. It satisfies something deep within you that God has put in you. And until you're there, guess what? There's going to be this distance between you and God, this longing that you have to do that. And guess what? Other people are going to look and go, I would never do what they're doing. I could never see myself fill in the blank doing whatever it is they're doing. But you do it with joy and gladness and you love it and, and you serve and it's fun. and you, It's fun to you. I mean, it, you enjoy it. That, that's what happened here. Here are these guys God raises up and they begin to, to work and do the craftsmanship and the carving and the sewing. And all of a sudden the tabernacle comes together. Same thing happened in Acts 6 and that's what we're uh, doing this morning. It wasn't an elaborate ceremony, just as this isn't anything significantly elaborate, but it was significant in the sense of the need that was being met in Acts chapter 6. We're six six chapters into the early church. Acts is the history of the early church. And in Acts chapter 6, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. I mean, we're six chapters in and people are complaining. That should not catch us by surprise. Get a group of people together, and guess what? You're going to have a complaint. People are going to look, and their needs aren't going to be met, or a certain thing isn't going to go exactly as they think it ought to go. Some people say, Jerry, does it bother you when people complain? No, it doesn't. Now, it bothers me when they run their mouths to other people and don't complain or talk to the person who could, who, who could do something about it, or they, they're not solution-oriented. I have a hotline for that, 1-800-WHO-CARES. All right, so just call that number but if you're solution oriented and you're not trying to down somebody and you see you see a hole up there are holes galore here just tell us we'll try to fix every one of them address every single one of them because hey we're human beings and we're in this scene together and so there arose a complaint and you've got these uh these uh, hellenistic jews uh, uh widows they're not being met Their needs aren't being met. And the twelve, the the apostles, Judas has died, and and there's somebody to replace him. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so that's what they did, and the list of guys is there. They chose them. Uh, that that's what you've done you nominated uh gary and daryl uh to serve you also nominated mike bundy he's already been ordained and served here as a deacon but you nominated gary and daryl and they've been through a time of testing they've uh, written out their testimonies they've answered specific questions as to as to their involvement in the life of this church and their involvement in their walks with the lord their wives agree that they are men who, who know and love the lord and then they've come back to you and you've said yes to them a second time. Why? In, in this way, in some kind of mysterious way, God also chooses them and you choose them too. He uses you as the family of God in the process of choice. Just like He did here in the book of Acts. God places you where you are. God puts you where you are. And I will say to you, you will never be completely content in the church until you're there, whatever that looks like. You know what I want for you for 2014? In 2014, I want you to be to find that sweet spot, just, just wherever, wherever that is. If you're not there, I, I don't want you to become comfortable until you are. I want the Holy Spirit just to dig in you until you find that place and say, okay, this is where I should be serving. This is what I should be doing. I've freeloaded enough. I'm walking in here. I'm doing nothing in the life of this church but walking in and just taking. And I'm not taking anymore unless I'm serving. And so here we go. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So the first implication of the oneness of the church, you are not inferior to any other member of the body. The last implication is that you are not superior to any other member of the body. What does Paul say? The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. All right, so the body is having this conversation again. And the eye cannot look at the hand and say, "Um, I don't need you. Or the head to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. All right, so we have kind of in descendant order three descriptions of different parts. First, the human body. Look at it. We have the weaker parts, the less honorable parts, and the unpresentable parts. So we have weaker parts, less honorable parts, and unpresentable parts. What is Paul talking about? Weaker, less honorable, and unpresentable. All right, let me ask you a question. I really want you to raise your hand this morning. How many of you, as you were getting ready for church this morning, thought about your pancreas? Raise your hand. What I thought nobody thought about your pancreas. Poor pancreas. I mean, come on, guys. Your pancreas is huge, it's so important. We have some doctors in, in the service this morning. I think I'm right on this. If your pancreas ceased to function, I think you would have to have daily insulin to make up for what your pancreas is doing and some kind of enzymatic stuff going on to replace some enzymes that your body is no longer producing. But guess what? Chop off a finger. You'll just be without a finger. No daily medicine needed. Body can operate just fine without a finger. Body can't operate without a pancreas. So when's the last time you took your pancreas in to get a, a, a panicure? Right? It is one of those not very presentable parts. I, I've never heard two ladies talking and one said, yeah, check out my pancreas. Yeah, look. It's looking good. As a matter of fact, what did Paul say we do uh, with those less presentable, less honorable parts? It's a play on words. You can't see it in the English, but it's a play on words. It says those parts are, that are less respectable, we treat them with respect. Or the less honorable, we treat with honor. Whatever word your translation uses, it's a play on words there. But he says we bestow. And that word literally bestow in the Greek means we put clothes on them. We put clothes on them. All right, so we know we do that with the human body. How do we do it with the church? Here's a question I have for you. It is a legitimately serious question. I want you to pay close attention. Whom are you a safe place for? Who comes to you in their struggle against sin and when they share it it stays right with you and you you stop right there and you say let's pray and you don't go and you broadcast oh so and so came to talk to me can you believe how about First Peter 4 8 you'll see it on the screen up here uh, Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love does what? Covers. A multitude of sins. What does that mean? That means if you come to me with your your struggle against sin, or you go to another brother or another sister, what they ought to do is clothe at that moment, the less presentable part of the body with love. So that the more presentable parts shine as they do, and the less presentable part is nourished and cherished back to spiritual health. Anybody in the room volunteer to have all your sins on that screen this morning? No. One of the marks of the church, this doesn't incidentally negate church discipline, we'll talk about that later in this series, but one of the marks of the church is that we do not take a person who's struggling against sin and kick them farther into the ground. Let me just think of it physically. Physically. You have a checkup, something's wrong with the pancreas. You go into the doctor, you say, listen, my pancreas is acting up. I'm sick of the thing. Just do some surgery, take it out, throw it away. The doctor's going to look at you like you're an idiot. We have medicine for that. We'll treat your pancreas. That's what Paul says here. Our more presentable parts do not require, but God, again, has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. I'll say to you, and I mean this, I want you to hear me on this. I mean this as a pastor. You could feel this this worship center. You could feel this, this metal building with hundreds and thousands of people who are struggling against sin, are duking it out against sin in perfect People who know that they are flawed and will rock this county for Christ. I would take that any day, any day, over hundreds of thousands of self-righteous, we've figured it all out, religious hypocrites. Amen? Oh, there, there are plenty of people in the world who figured everything out, they think. They know when you fail because they point it out to you. I mean, they're quite adept at finding your fault and pointing it out to you. They know exactly when you've blown it because they pop up. You know, they're like the little gopher. Then they come up out of the hole, and gotcha. And, you know, you, you step along, and you stumble again, and then gotcha, and there they are. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. I mean, you could be an ESPN, ESPN analyst and figure out everything that went wrong in the game. It just takes a whole lot more to play the game. Give me players all day long. I need no analyst. Amen? That's what Paul is saying here. That's what he is saying. Stories told of a mandarin and a tailor. This man in, in Vietnam was appointed to the position of a mandarin, which is a position of great wisdom. And uh, prestige in the Vietnamese society. He was overjoyed. He was beside himself. And so he uh, said to his friend, I must find a tailor who can make a robe fitting for such a high position that I have attained. And his friend said, well, I know just the tailor for you. He is an old, wise tailor who is fitted many a mandarin for their their robe. And he gave him his address, and the newly appointed mandarin made an appointment with the tailor, and the two met. The old tailor came out with his measure, and he measured the, the client as he did all of his clients. He measured him to fit him for his new robe that he was going to make for him. Once he had finished measuring him precisely and accurately, he put the tape measure away and looked at the guy, and he said, sir, I have one more question for you. Sure, said his, his would-be client. Um, how long have you been a Mandarin? His client was taken aback that he would ask such a question, and he said, well, well sir, why, why, why do you ask such a question? He said, oh, you see, sir, if if you're a newly appointed Mandarin, all newly appointed Mandarins walk with their noses tilted in the air, their chest stuck out, their head held high, and I have to make the front of their robes longer so it'll be even with the back. He said, but after a few years of service and the weight of experience a mandarin walks with his head straight seeing both the trouble ahead and the solution to the problem I I make their robes even on the front and on the back but then after many years of aged experience the humility that comes from the load and the weight of leadership, the stooped over Mandarin, I have to make his robe longer in the back. Sir, how long have you been a Mandarin? The newly appointed Mandarin Walked out of the tailor's office that day, realizing why his friend had sent him to the old wise tailor. I ask you this morning if your wife were to choose the cut. For your robe. What would it be? If your employees. Were to choose the cut. For your robe. What would they say to the tailor? The men. That you are about to meet. If you don't know them. Do not walk with their noses tilted up, their chest stuck out. No, they come this morning as humble men, seasoned by the experience of faithfully walking with God, of serving Him with joy. They haven't figured everything out. They would be the first to tell you that. They both indicated their surprise at their nomination and the humbling effect that it had on them.